Welcome to the PA Books podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. While the focus is always on Pennsylvania, topics like the Revolutionary War, the Battle of Gettysburg, the Industrial Revolution, the coal and steel industries, and authors like John Updike, David McCullough, and John Grogan have a universal appeal. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, George Goodwin, author of Benjamin Franklin in London. George Goodwin, author of Benjamin Franklin in London. You are currently author in residence at the Benjamin Franklin House in London. If I would go to the Benjamin Franklin House in London, what would I find? You would find the only surviving home of Benjamin Franklin. It is extraordinary that of all the homes in which he lived, the only surviving home um, is Craven Street in London. And you can actually um, call it his home because um, Mrs. Stevenson, his landlady, effectively became his business partner, replacing his wife, Deborah, over a period of almost two decades that he was in London. But what you'll find now is a museum and education centre. And it's actually, it's a miracle that it has survived because at the end of uh, the 20th century, it was in absolute ruinous state. It was in danger of being demolished. And all these incredible original features, including the staircase that Benjamin Franklin used to run up and down as part of his personal gym for when it was raining outside. He actually also used dumbbells. It's extraordinary. Um, that's still there. Though we don't recommend people to run up and down it now because it's a bit precious. But what they, they decided to do... Um, at Benjamin Franklin House was to create it as um, a, um, a virtual um, museum, if you like. So what they could have done is that they could have filled it with all kinds of repro furniture. But instead of doing that, uh, they have audio-visual projections. They ha also have an actress who gives you a tour of the house, obviously in 18th century costume, as Polly Stevenson, the daughter of the house. And it, work, I mean, it works brilliantly. You've got um, Peter Coyote as Benjamin Franklin and Imelda Staunton, who's a very famous uh, British actress, as Mrs. Stevenson. Um, and uh, it's all good fun. They do a phenomenal amount of education there as well. So uh, it's good news. How well known is Benjamin Franklin in England today? Not as well known as he should be. Of course, I mean, rather cheekily, I'm hoping that he's going to be rather better known as a result of the, of the book. But no, I mean, his British life, I mean, it's the same here, surely, that um, he's remembered for uh, the kite experiment, though actually it wasn't, it wasn't the kite experiment that really made him a famous scientist. And he's also remembered for the Declaration of Independence, He's not even particularly um, well-known, though he's better known for his time in France when he brought the French into the uh, American War of Independence, and he kept the French there, and that was absolutely crucial. I mean, even John Adams had to, uh, with, a, with a degree of reluctance, 
had to agree that, uh, that uh, General Washington and Benjamin Franklin were the two most important people for winning independence. How, how well known was Benjamin Franklin when he was living in England? Uh, now that's a very different story. When he, he spent, um, well, three periods in London, uh, he came over as, a, as a, a young man to London in 1724 as a teenage printer. And uh, he, that is when he formed a phenomenal uh, attachment. I mean, he had actually before he'd, he'd left Britain, but he formed, an, uh, before he left America, he had a, an, a phenomenal attachment to British writers and writing, British influences, and indeed London itself. Extraordinarily enough, because he'd actually read Joseph Addison of The Spectator before he came uh, over to Britain, um, he really liked the idea of coffee house society, and he projected himself into coffee house society. It, I mean, it's really quite uh, extraordinary that um, he was a cheeky young man, a cheeky young teenager. He, um, he wrote to Sir Hans Sloane. He wanted to see Sir Isaac Newton, who was his great hero, but he had to make do with Sir Hans Sloane, who was uh, Newton's number two at the Royal Society. And he sold him an asbestos purse, uh, which he'd brought over from America, all kinds of asbestos objects, because he knew that Sloane was a great, curate, a great collector. And in fact, Sloane's collection became the foundation collection of the, the British Museum, which was founded in 1753. And, um, Sloan, Sloan bought it, and it's still there in London today. It's actually in the, the Natural History Museum. It's, it's, it's rather fun. But what I really liked about it, and this is wonderful in terms of research, when you get three things coming together. Franklin writes about it in his autobiography. There's the letter, still extant, which is in the, the papers of, of Benjamin Franklin. And there's also the purse. But I particularly like the letter because it has a PS to Sloan, which says... Even though he'd been in London for six months, Franklin writes, I'm only here for two or three days, um, and then I will be leaving. So it really has that kind of modern, modern sort of feel to it, which is hurry now to avoid disappointment. Anyway, he was in, um, his first time in London was 18 months, and he did all kinds of things. He worked for, for two different printers. He also gave swimming lessons. And he, he considered staying in London as a swimming instructor. So this would be, have been another, another thing that Benjamin Franklin might have done, but he decided not to do. But when he came over in 1757, it was completely different. He was no longer the unknown man. He was the famous scientist. I want to back up a little bit. Would you tell the story about Governor Keith and how he oh, absolutely. ended up going to England the first time? Well, you see, um, going back even slightly further, which was, of course, he was born in, in Boston in, in 1706. He came to Philadelphia in 1723, having been an apprentice to his brother James, and he rather sort of fled his apprenticeship in, uh, in Boston, came to Philadelphia. And in his autobiography, he writes about, um, he arrives in Philadelphia, and uh, it, he's looked after by some kind Quakers. He gives this sort of view of being, you know, in a rather desperate state. 
but he had a trade. He was a printer. So he immediately found uh, employment here with, uh, with Samuel Keimer. But uh, Governor Keith, the governor of Pennsylvania for the pens, um, came to see him one day. And he, uh, he chatted up the young printer. He took him to the local tavern and gave him Madeira, which was actually was a, a great favorite Franklin tipple throughout his life, and talked about setting up in business with, uh, with young Ben Franklin. He also said to, uh, said to Ben Franklin, why don't you go and see your father and get him to invest in this venture? But Josiah, Ben's father, was um, a little bit more worldly wise and advised against it. But Ben agreed with, with Governor Keith, and before, before long, he was on a ship to England with, so he was told, letters of introduction that would then set him up. They'd, he'd buy, be able to buy a, um, a printing press and be able to go back to, uh, to Philadelphia. He arrived. He offered his first, well, first of all, he had difficulty. You know, he, he said, to, um, said to the captain, um, you know, I'm not sure where these letters of, of introduction are that, you know, I was told that they would be here. Uh, Keith's sort of right-hand man did come on board and, and, uh, and said, you know, all was okay before we set sail. Can I have a sort of little rummage around in the, in, in the, the postal sacks? So, so he did. And he found some letters which um, seemed to be sort of the letters. The first one he produced, he took along to a shop and the man in the shop said, oh, this is, this is worthless. This is from a man called Rittenhouse. He, he's, uh, he's a fraud. So poor, poor Ben Franklin was, again, he was stuck in this enormous great city, 575,000 people strong. And he'd just come from somewhere which had a sort of population of about 7,000, so much, much smaller. What would he do? Well, the thing was, he was a printer, so he was actually able to go into the printing trade. But the extraordinary thing is nobody knows why Keith did this, why he, he led Ben on this sort of wild goose chase, except a merchant called Denham, who became a, a good friend of, uh, of young Ben Franklin, said, oh, well, you know, this is, um, this is par for the course. He's done this before. So it was very, very strange behavior landing this poor, poor young boy in, uh, in a foreign city but it was the making of him. And he was there for 18 months? He was, yeah, 18 months. Did he ever think of staying permanently? He did, he did. He also thought of perhaps going on a, on a tour of, of Europe with a new friend that he'd made at, uh, at one of the printing houses. But the, uh, the aforementioned Denham was, uh, was a wise man and said, you know, why, you know, you're a very, very clever young chap. Why don't you come into business with me and we can, you know, work in, I've got a big, big store back in, uh, back in Philadelphia, and you can come and work with me as a, as a trainee merchant, and, uh, you know, we'll do very well. So it's another, another sort of bend or fork in the road, if you like. He could have become an incredibly successful merchant. Well, in fact, he did later. Um, but uh, Denham became seriously ill and died, and... Uh, and young Ben went back to work for, for Samuel Keimer in an interesting kind of duel where Keimer was trying to get Ben's expertise to, uh, to teach the apprentices. And Ben was trying to save money to set himself up in business, which eventually he did. 
Now, since your book is focusing on Benjamin Franklin in London, let's talk about the next trip, which you mentioned, 1757. That's right. Well, um, you asked me why or, or um, you know, whether he was more famous when he, when, yes, he was. And he, I mean, he, the reason for going was because he went as a representative of the Assembly of Pennsylvania to try and get the Penn family to pay some taxes, pay some taxes, because they weren't paying any taxes at all. But when he arrived in London, he was absolutely um, fallen upon by British aristocratic society who were in the grip of a scientific craze and Benjamin Franklin had won the Copley Medal, which was the equivalent of the Nobel Prize at the time, for his scientific uh, investigations and discoveries, and for the publication of a book. And the book was called um, Experiments and Observations Made on Electricity Made at Philadelphia in America. And it was the book, it wasn't the kite experiment, that made him famous. The kite experiment had actually already been undertaken in France before Franklin did it, uh, and he knew about this. A few times, actually, it had been um, undertaken rather unsuccessfully with a few sort of frazzled and fizzled uh, Frenchmen as a result. But, uh, but Ben did it to actually prove to himself that it worked, but it was the uh, it was actually the book that, that was the reason for his fame. I mean, Immanuel Kant, I mean, he was famous across Europe. Immanuel Kant called him the Prometheus of modern times. He was that, you know, he really was one of the most famous scientists in the world. Well, while he was in London, he was appointed to a committee uh, for, to help St. Paul's Cathedral avoid London uh, lightning. Absolutely. This he, is the St. Paul's that's there now? Absolutely. He was one of a committee uh, from the Royal Society because St. Bride's Church, which is a, it's a rather lovely um, church in, uh, just off Fleet Street in London, it's known as the, as the Wedding Cake Church because of its, its extremely um, long steeple and in its sort of various tiers, a bit like a, like a wedding cake, um, had been struck by lightning. And uh, so they didn't want this to happen to St. Paul's. So a committee of, of five from the Royal Society, of which he was uh, one of the, the sort of the, the leading members. And another one was John Canton, who actually won the Copley Medal twice. So it's like winning the, the Nobel uh, Prize twice. And another person was Benjamin Wilson, who was a great friend of, of Benjamin Franklin. He was, a, in fact, he was responsible for one of the most famous portraits of Franklin, uh, which um, has him standing in the foreground. And uh, there's a, you can see a, a lightning strike in the, well, you actually can just see it. I mean, the, the, um, the painting really does need to, uh, to be restored. It actually rather looks as if, uh, as if he's smoking, smoking a cigarette. So, but however, however, it's... Uh, and they actually, they fell out very, very badly later, but we can come, we can come back to that later. Well, I want to skip ahead to This is toward the end of your book. You say in May of 1777, lightning struck the board house at the Ordnance Depot at Purfleet, and King George III put the full, blame full square on Franklin. Right. Well, in fact, we, we've come to later already. Very happy to. What happened was actually St. Paul's was struck by lightning, 
Uh, and um, the reason it was struck was they decided that the, um, they needed to replace the, the rods, that in fact the, uh, the iron rods really needed to be replaced by, by copper. Uh, but it was, you know, it was minor, minor. However, a committee was uh, appointed in the early 1770s to um, ensure that the ordnance at Purfleet was not struck by lightning, because that would have been absolutely devastating. It had all the gunpowder? Because it, it had happened in Italy, where uh, gunpowder had been stored in the basement of a church, and uh, it had blown up, and thousands and thousands and thousands of people had been killed. So very, very keen to make sure that this didn't, didn't happen. Now, um, in spite of Franklin and again Wilson on the committee, it was struck. The ordinance uh, was struck in 1777, obviously after the, uh, the War of Independence had started. And George III decided that, in fact, Franklin was to blame. And he was backing up Benjamin Wilson because Benjamin Wilson, who was quite a sort of troubled and troublesome man, was worried that the, the Franklin-style lightning conductor that he'd invented was too effective. And it was actually drawing the lightning, the static electricity, uh, into, the, uh, into the lightning rod, but to a such an extent that the, that the lightning conductor actually couldn't cope with it. So he, instead of having points, which was the Franklin system, he wanted uh, knobs, because he believed that, uh, that that actually would, would make a difference and would sort of dispel the amount of, uh, of electricity. Went into this in some detail, actually. I, I um, talked to a, a very senior um, physicist at, um, at Cambridge University about this. And I said, you know, was, was Wilson right? And he said, well, actually, it really doesn't make very much difference. However, George III was, was convinced that Franklin had deliberately set up these lightning conductors, and the Board of Ordnance was struck. But what had happened was that a, a metal cramp, which uh, holds um, stone together, um, had worked loose. There was, a, there was a gap in the connection, and that is why, obviously, it traveled down, the lightning traveled down, but wasn't earthed at that point. Uh, but I mean, that was nothing to do with the design, it was to do with, with the way it was put in. However, George III was, um, was so insistent that, uh, that it was the Franklin design that he set up for Wilson this um, experiment, which they, um, they tried to, in this enormous great sort of arena, closed arena, to try and simulate a cloud and a lightning strike. And um, George III was convinced. He said, you know, the apple women in the street can see. But I'm afraid it was, it was all a little bit fabricated. And when Franklin was told about this, he said that, you know, uh, he would be completely pleased if George III dispense with all lightning conductors whatsoever on his palaces. So that was the case of Benjamin Franklin. Actually was quite, quite, um, quite terse and uh, one might even say slightly bitchy about, uh, about this. But, you know, it was all justification. 
Did Benjamin Franklin ever meet George III? Now, this is, this is actually an oft-asked uh, question. Yes, he did in, in so far as the, as a representative of the Assembly of Pennsylvania, he would go to the king's levees. But a little bit like um, today, you know, these, these were sort of semi-private. Uh, semi so, you know, you weren't supposed to, supposed to, uh, to say what was going on. It's a little bit like um, the audience. There's a, a play of British prime ministers meeting the queen. And uh, it's all fiction, because the whole point of meeting the Queen for British Prime Ministers is that nobody knows what is said. And, that, and uh, it's set up for them so that there is someone that they can talk to without it ever getting out. Even Tony Blair didn't blab about it. So, I mean, it is quite sort of secret stuff. However, a sort of a reported one-to-one, face-to-face in the way that George III and Dr. Johnson met there's actually no record of that. You say in your book that uh, at one point Benjamin Franklin had two portraits of George III. Absolutely. So he must have been an admirer at some well, point. Well, actually, he had the, the, the portraits he had actually were of the Earl of Butte. Uh, that uh, he was a great admirer of the Earl of Butte. And the importance of Butte was that Butte was uh, George III's tutor. And when George III came to the throne in 1760, Butte was actually put into, into government. It took a little while. He was like the cuckoo in the nest. But by 1762, he'd elbowed out the Duke of Newcastle, which took a lot of elbowing out because the Duke of Newcastle had been in government for decades. And also William Pitt the Elder. And Butte took over. Now, Franklin was actually very close to Butte. Uh, we're not quite sure who introduced them? All kinds of people might have done. Peter Collinson, who was this uh, trader who actually sent over the electrical equipment to, to Benjamin Franklin in Philadelphia, uh, was one because he was a great botanist and Butte was a great botanist. In fact, he was the founders of Kew Gardens, one of the most famous gardens in, in the world. So that's one. And Butte was Scottish. And Franklin had a lot of Scottish friends. He, uh, David Hume, uh, the great historian and philosopher, William Strawn, who was Dr. Johnson's printer, Caleb Whiteford, who would actually, in, he was somebody who would be sent over to uh, negotiate with, with Franklin at the end of the, the war in Paris. He was close to him. He was a neighbor and also Franklin's wine merchant. So any of these, uh, and James Ralph, who'd come over with Franklin as a young man to, to London, they'd come over on the same, same ship as friends. Any of these might have actually introduced him to Butte. But he was close enough. Uh, and John Adams um, later made this, this thing about, oh, Franklin used to swear about how close he was to, to the Earl of Butte. Obviously not too good later on to say how close you were to, to British ministers. But he was close. I mean, he was, he was very close indeed. You said uh, earlier about his mission to go and get the Penn family to pay taxes. Why weren't they paying taxes? Ah, because they owned Pennsylvania. I mean, imagine you have this situation where um, one family effectively has the freehold of all the land in the state. 
and uh, you know it was set up in the charter that uh, that they didn't need to pay taxes. This was something which actually had to be negotiated. He, Franklin, retired from his business, highly successful business. He was a highly successful journalist, newspaper proprietor as the, of the Pennsylvania Gazette, as a printer. He was a great uh, paper merchant. At one stage, uh, he was the largest paper merchant in America. I have to read you this uh, little joke that you put in. Oh, yeah. Deborah, his wife, purchased rags used in papermaking, and Franklin sold the papermakers 166,000 pounds of them between 1739 and 1747, bringing the Franklins the considerable sum of more than 1,000 pounds. In that sense, it was a rags-to-riches story. Oh, I love it. And actually, I owe that to, to Jim Green of the, the library company uh, here in Philadelphia, who uh, who put it in his book? So uh, always keen, always keen to give credit, and uh, and that was I fell on that, and I thought that was great because, of course, I mean backtracking a little bit, um, his has been described as a rags to riches story. It wasn't because I mean Ben Franklin's father, the aforementioned Josiah, he had his own business as a tallow chandler and soap maker in Boston, and I actually discovered something. Unfortunately, after, after the, uh, the um, illustrations had been chosen, the book was about to go to, to press, there's a portrait, a 1713 portrait of Benjamin Franklin's mother. And you actually had to have a position in society and a bit of wherewithal to commission a portrait like that. So, you know, he was, I mean, at, at various times, I mean, Josiah was, was pretty hard up. But it wasn't, a, it wasn't a rags to riches story. I mean, um, a, okay, young Ben only had 18 months formal education. He would have liked to have gone to, to Harvard, but uh, he was pulled out of, of school by his father. You know, because basically, I mean, we're talking about uh, 16 children from two marriages. He had a lot of mouths to feed, and young Ben being at the end of the line, uh, he was actually apprenticed to his brother James, as I mentioned, as a, as a printer. He could have done all kinds of other trades, actually. I mean, his father took him, took him round Boston docks and um, showed him all, all these trades. Josiah uh, Franklin was incredibly practical. He could mend all kinds of machinery. And this is true with, with Ben as well. I mean, with broken, he could mend broken type. So he didn't have to wait from, for type to be sent over from, from England. He was the first person, effectively, to make his own type. He would have been the most brilliant handyman today. If you'd have Ben Franklin in your house, he would have fixed everything. He was a very practical man. So the, the Penn family was Thomas Penn and... Richard Penn, were they the sons or the grandsons? They were the sons. They were sons, sons of William by, by, Penn. by a second marriage. And in fact, uh, the second marriage got all the money. And in fact, uh, Ben Franklin, when he was uh, work, effectively working against the Penns in London, uh, found a, a rather sort of weak and weedy son, Springit Penn, uh, from the, the first marriage and tried to get him involved. But it was, it was, it was hopeless course and actually Spring and Penn died quite quite soon afterwards. So, so he, actually, went, he he was a grandson, sorry, not a son of the first marriage. So how did he proceed to uh, to try to get the, the Pens to pay taxes? Well what he did is that he had meetings with them. Uh, you know, they had to uh, 
to see him as the, the formal representative of the assembly being sent over to negotiate with him. So the Penns were living in England all the time, they were living, full time? They were living, well, Thomas Penn was over in, uh, in Pennsylvania for a very short time in the 1730s. But he was effectively an absentee landlord. There was another actually big difference to his father. He wasn't a Quaker. He had converted to the, the Church of England. He'd married into the British aristocracy, a daughter of the Earl of Pomfret. Uh, they'd been married at uh, Hanover, St. George's Hanover Square in London, which was the church to be, to be married in. And he had his portrait painted, and his portrait, uh, which is in the, um, in the art museum here in, in Philadelphia, is actually quite instructive, because you see him in front of a window, and through that window you can see his parkland, designed by Capability Brown, the great British landscape designer. I mean, he designed the grounds for Blenheim Palace, for instance. That's his first name, Capability? Capability. And in fact, it's his, uh, it's a major, I think it's the tercentenary uh, this year. I'm trying to remember, it must be of uh, his birth. Um, so there's you know, quite a lot about Capability Brown in, uh, in Britain at, at the moment. But he, yes, he was basically, if you had Capability Brown designing your parkland estate, you were in with the in crowd. You were definitely accepted amongst British society. And that's what Thomas Penn was, was interested in. Pennsylvania, to him, was basically a way to make money. He was just interested in the money. And uh, in what has been described as the most egregious land grab in history, the walking purchase of 1737, he basically got people to sort of, if you like, beat the bounds to walk as far as they could in a day in Indian lands to increase the, the land under his control, which he could then effectively sell off, or rather grant the leasehold. So people would pay him things called quit rents, which effectively like the sort of leasehold payment to bring him more money. No, he was just, he was just interested in, in the money. He was a bit worried about Franklin coming over because, um, Benjamin Franklin had thrown himself into public life after he retired in, uh, in 1748 at the early age of 42. And um, previously, he'd been the clerk of the Assembly of Pennsylvania, but he soon became a very active member of it. Uh, it was during this time when uh, Pennsylvania was under threat uh, in King George's War of uh, invasion by the French, that he set up a militia, for instance. And he became a, and Thomas Penn, you know, thought, you know, Benjamin Franklin, he seems to be some kind of tribune of the people. But because he's, he's in with the people, we better keep a, an eye on him. But to an extent, he worked, Ben Franklin actually worked with the, uh, with the pro-proprietary um, party here, with people like William Allen, um, who was you know, the richest man living in, in Philadelphia. And uh, they worked together in founding, for instance, the, um, the Academy of Philadelphia, which later became 
much later became the University of Pennsylvania. So he was involved in you know, setting up fire company and fire insurance, American Philosophical Society, you know, the library company. He set up all these institutions. And then going back to his first time in London, because he had British roots, you know, he gave them British foundation stones on the basis of writers that he had read, Locke and Defoe, to add to, to Joseph Addison that I mentioned earlier. And so he was actually a substantial man, became one of the leading assembly men. He was famous in Europe because of the electrical experiments. So a man to send over to, to England to negotiate with Thomas Penn and who will also have some kind of status in the community. Well, he was a famous scientist, but when he went in the role of diplomat or negotiator, was he taken seriously by the Penns or by Ah, Parliament? well, you see, that's a very good question, Brian, because what uh, Thomas Penn said is, he said, you know, he may be, he, Thomas Penn sort of dismissed him as the electrician. And um, he said, you know, he may be able to have influence with, uh, with scientists and those who are interested in electrician. Uh, some of whom I know, but amongst the people who count, he'll have no leverage at all, and those are the people that I know well. It was true for a short time, because, you know, 1757, the last few years of George II, who died in 1760, an old man, uh, 70, he was 74 in, in, uh, in uh, 1757, and um, so had difficulty kind of... Um, getting through to the ministers then in charge who'd been there for a long time, with whom Penn had influence. But even at that early stage, and by reading the papers of Benjamin Franklin and a studious study of the notes, I can actually see that he was very close to a lot of the undersecretaries, i.e. the people who did the work, not the aristocratic politicians, as early as 1757. But the key thing is he came over and he had a, an initial meeting with the Pens, which was reasonably cordial. Uh, it was actually with Thomas Penn. Uh, Thomas said, you know, my brother Richard is out of town at the moment. You know, can you come, come back again? At the, the next meeting, slightly later in 1757, I don't think that Ben Franklin was very well. In fact, I spent quite a lot of time investigating uh, when he was bitten by the mosquito that gave him malaria because he was polaxed for some months by malaria. And I believe that he was actually suffering early symptoms when he met the Pence because he was completely outflanked by them. What he did is he brought along a document called Heads of Complaint. And in this, it was kind of like an informal discussion paper, so, um, so he believed, where he mentioned the three things that he wanted to talk to the Pens about. Because the Pens actually had a complete grip on the government of, or how Pennsylvania was, was governed. You should have, it should have been set up so that the governor, or rather the lieutenant governor, the representative of the Penn family, and the assembly should work together. But the lieutenant governor had various veto powers. There was one constraint on how he could behave, 
Thomas Penn had this ability, if the governor didn't do what he wanted, he had the ability to fine him. Okay. So that was going to keep him under control. The, the lieutenant governor also had the ability to veto laws. And he also, as I said before, um, he had the ability to say that, I'm afraid the Penn family are not going to pay any taxes. The French are at the door. The militia need to be paid for. They, the assembly said, you know, please, 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 can we have some money? And the pen said, no, no, I'm sorry, you can't. And he could actually also veto the assembly raising taxes. So it's like a, a double thing. In that case, when the, um, in King George's War, when the, there was the French threat and the militia needed to be paid for, there was a grant. There was a grant of, uh, I think if I remember, £5,000 from Louis Pen, which was quite, quite a lot of money. However, as you, can, as you can guess from this, the whole thing was totally and utterly sort of uh, at gridlock. So and the pens could just say, oh, forget it, and be on your way, and that was it? Yeah, there's another thing that I actually found, that the Quakers still dominated the assembly. And uh, at one stage, um, again, I think in the late 1740s, if I remember correctly, uh, Thomas Penn was trying to get the British Privy Council to make the Quakers swear an oath of allegiance uh, to the Church of England, which was the case in Britain. But fortunately, his, um, his brother-in-law, Earl Granville, who was top man, president of the Privy Council, in this case, actually didn't go with his brother-in-law, Thomas Penn, and said, no, no, we'll, we'll block it. And, and so the Quakers were able. But, you know, he was trying every single trick he could to maintain his power and maintain his wealth. Now, but to go back to the meeting, um, these he the heads of complaint, which is this kind of like note, um, the Penns decided, they, they passed, their, passed this over to their lawyer, a very scheming man himself called Ferdinand Paris, who actually years before had been a representative of the Assembly of Pennsylvania in London. So, you know, he knew, knew the ground. Uh, he treated these as if they were a formal document. And he also, he and the pen, Thomas Penn himself, wrote complaining to the Assembly of Pennsylvania, what is going on? You know, you've sent this representative over and he's presented this kind of shabby, shabby document. He obviously has no idea how to behave and he's a disgrace to you. Um, so things started to go very, very awry when they had the next meeting between Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Penn. Um, it was to do with Indian treaties. And uh, they, the charter was discussed. And um, Franklin wrote to, to a friend, and uh, again, on the, the normal basis of, oh, you know, well, here you are. Uh, don't show it to anybody. He's a bit careless like this because, you know, somebody else. Anyway, he complained. He, um, he recited what had, had gone on by saying that uh, Thomas Penn had effectively said that his father, people who had fallen for a, um, a particular clause in his father's charter were fools. And that uh, Ben Franklin was kind of 
thunderstruck. So he was effectively saying, so what you're saying is that your father deliberately cheated these people in the way that the charter was set up. And Thomas Penn, yes, they should have looked for themselves. And Franklin was absolutely appalled by this. He, he, he tried to keep his expression to himself. But Richard Penn, was, uh, who was there, said, you know, he, you know, he, looked, um, he looked as insolent as always. He always does. So uh, <laughs> showed, showed how they were not getting on. Anyway, um, in this letter home, Ben Franklin said that um, Thomas Penn had uttered this statement uh, like, a, uh, like a low jockey on the sale of a horse. So, you know, who had cheated the purchaser on the sale of a horse. And when that, that got back to Thomas Penn, and after that, all communication ceased. It went to the Privy Council. It took a very, very long time to sort out, but to cut this very long story short, in 1760, the Privy Council announced. And effectively, what happened was that when it came to taxes, the key thing was that the, the Pens would have to pay taxes, but they could make their own assessment at the lowest possible rate. I'd quite like to do that, Brian, wouldn't you? <laughs> Well, how much, when in the time Franklin was over in London for each of his trips over there, how much time was he actually working? And how much time was he spent kind of waiting around for instructions from, from Philadelphia or, or waiting for a meeting with someone? Oh, for a very, very long time. And what did he do in his spare time? Oh, well, because he, um, he had the most wonderful time. He went to, uh, to clubs. He went to uh, clubs, at meetings at the Royal Society. Uh, of course, he'd been elected, I'm not sure I said earlier, he'd been elected a fellow. Uh, and uh, so there was a, a special dining club of the Royal Society. He never actually joined the club, but he was the most uh, invited guest during his entire time in London. And then the, um, you know, there were important people there, like, um, like um, Sir John Pringle, who became president of the Royal Society, and also Benjamin Franklin's great traveling companion around Europe and the British Isles, and they played chess together. And the, um, the chess set is, st is still owned, it's still extant, it's owned by the American Philosophical Society. It's quite sort of badly beaten up, so it needs to be very, very well looked after. So that was one club. And uh, he was also a member of the Society of Arts, which is now in, in Britain is, is uh, gained the Royal Society of Arts. And that was all about uh, improvement and uh, there was a lot of um, issuing grants for agriculture in America. Actually, that, that tells another part of the story between Britain and America, because Britain saw America as the place for raw materials. So raw materials, so timber, for instance, uh, nice foods for, for, for Benjamin Franklin to enjoy, and uh, what came one way, and manufactured goods, furniture, furnishings, and fabrics came the other way. And uh, you can see this. I mean, they had the great tercentenary exhibition for Franklin's birth in, uh, in 2006. And uh, actually, I mean, it's, must have, the catalog of it is, uh, was published, and it's, uh, it is absolutely tremendous, because it, it has a lot of the, the stuff that he sent over 
from England. He was actually, because he was this interested scientist, he was interested in the manufacturing process. So poor Deborah would be sent all kinds of bolts of cloth, none of it necessarily matched, because he wasn't interested in that. He was just interested in buying the materials and looking at them and sending them over. Actually, there was one case where he sent some fabric over and he said, you know, this is really interesting fabric that I bought for you. I think it might suit you, but if it doesn't, give it to my sister Jenny, she'll take anything. So, I mean, it was, that was the sort of the basis. But there was this sort of restraint on manufacture in the, in, in the American colony. What did he do for money? Oh, well, of course, he, um, he was paid by the assembly as a representative, really paid quite well. He had massive expenses. And for one reason, he had to have his own coach because, you know, he couldn't be seen. I mean, hackney coaches uh, around Craven Street were really not quite, uh, they, they were dirty and, and not quite suitable for the, um, the representative of uh, the assembly to get out of, get in, uh, uh, and indeed out of. They, you know, his clothes would have been dirty. So, I mean, this cost 12 guineas a month. I mean, that was a lot of money. In fact, what I tried to do was, I mean, I, I read in, in, in one book, um, kind of summed up the position. It was a bit like having your own private helicopter, uh, you know, the equivalent of today. So I actually got onto a private helicopter company and said, now, look, if I wanted to hire a private helicopter for a month, how much would it cost me? And they said, actually, it doesn't really work like that. <laughs> so I did try. But, I mean, it was an extravagance, but it was an extravagance that he thought he should have. He was also, of course, deputy postmaster for, for America. So he had that job as well. And how could he do that job while he was in England for... Oh, well, because, he well, he'd, he'd worked incredibly hard when he'd been, been over here. But, you know, he had to, to represent... Uh, America in Britain. They need actually a man to represent. Uh, however, um, that was actually a point that was made by the Earl of Sandwich, who was to become a great foe towards the end of his time, who was uh, one of the postmasters, saying, you know, he's, in fact, uh, Ben wrote to his son William, and William had actually done extremely well out of the Butte connection, because during that time, uh, Butte had been made. Uh, governor, or rather deputy governor, no, proper royal governor of, um, of New Jersey. So he wrote to, to, to William saying, uh, I'm a bit worried, you know, that uh, Lord Sandwich sees me as too much of an American. This was actually in the 1760s. This is quite early on. Well, I want to ask you about that because it, it, it's usually said that Benjamin Franklin was very proud to be an Englishman. Absolutely. At what point did he switch from being, thinking of himself as an Englishman to thinking of himself as an American? Well, that's a very good question because, having mentioned the chess playing, I see him as a chess grandmaster capable of playing several tables simultaneously. When the Stamp Act was introduced in 1765, um, this, of course, was seen to be a an illegal act cutting across the charters of the American colonies. Only the colonies could actually level, levy internal taxes. And uh, the government that brought it in, George Grenville's government, that fell. Actually, it fell because 
George III really couldn't stand him. Uh, Grenville was sort of lecturing him the whole time. And uh, the Marquis of Rockingham, the richest man in England and actually far more pro-American, he became the Prime Minister and repeal was set up. Repeal was set up um, and um, in, in, 17, uh, in 1766. And there was a committee of the whole House of Commons. And Benjamin Franklin was the star witness. Well, earlier I was talking about the fact that he really did have leverage with the, the British government. Um, a fellow called Gray Cooper was undersecretary to the Treasury, a very important role. And we know that the, uh, this was quite an early connection because there was a letter from uh, Gray Cooper to Benjamin Franklin from 1760, I think 1760, late 1762, maybe 1763, where um, he wants to hear um, Franklin play the harmonica. And this is the, uh, and they're obviously on very friendly terms there. They were on extremely friendly terms by 1766, because again, reading through the notes to the, uh, the papers of Benjamin Franklin, you can see that Franklin's performance, it was a complete and utter setup that they rehearsed all the questions that he was going to get from the pro-repeal people. They also rehearsed the kind of questions that he was going to get from the people who wanted the Stamp Act to stay in place. To that extent, that's pretty modern, really. The Stamp Act was repealed. However, there was a twist in the tale of this. Because in order for the Rockingham government's rather dodgy parliamentary majority to stick, the backbenchers needed to be thrown a sop. And this sop was, was the Declaratory Act. Now, the Declaratory Act gave Britain the right to tax the American colonies. But it was said that it would not be enforced. Now, Ben Franklin was actually quite happy with this because he said, well, you know, you've had the Declaratory Act with Ireland for years and years and years, and it hasn't been enforced. So, so it should be fine, it should be fine. This is actually a compromise, and he was very good at compromises. This is a compromise that will work out. However, it was a, if you like, a, an unwritten agreement. And we all know what Sam Goldwyn has to say, or had to say, about verbal and unwritten agreements. And what he said was, a verbal agreement is not worth the paper it's not written on. And such was the case here, uh, because just a year later, Rockingham's government fell, the Earl of Chatham came in, the Earl of Chatham was actually not able to, to govern that, that, sorry, that's William Pitt, the elder Earl of Chatham, and the Chancellor of the Exchequer, uh, Charles Townsend, introduced taxes on paper, paint, glass, and on tea. And this cut completely and utterly against the agreement. Now, as far as, as Ben Franklin was concerned, this, and again, having studied the papers, you could see that this is the moment when he starts to think, I'm actually getting rather worried here about what is going to happen between the relationship between Britain and its colonies. And he was actually very, very fearful for the future, 
for one of them. He was very, very fearful for, for Britain. Because having traveled up and down uh, America as postmaster general to check out the best possible routes, and of course, being Ben Franklin, he invented the odometer in the process. Um, having done that, he knew about the massive, rich potential of America. I mean, he wrote um, about, uh, he, he'd written in 1754, um, observations on the increase of mankind about population. And he'd thought then that the population of America would increase, in fact, it would double every 25 years. Do you know what? He was pretty much right for a very long time, because it did. It did because people came over for Britain, uh, from Britain, and um, whereas people used to go to London and the population would stay steady, even with this mass of immigrants, because everybody would die from disease, over here, in this wonderful uh, open country, a great outdoors, People didn't die, and uh, you know you had families like his own, you know, sixteen children, most of whom, almost all of whom, actually survived. Uh, then the the increase was going to be was going to be great. But he wrote to a friend then, and he said, I, I, "I'm rather I'm rather worried about what's going to happen." Now you also asked me about uh, wh where else he got the money from. He'd had a um, a sleeping partnership, if you like. He'd become a non-executive director of his own business. Uh, his, he'd sold his business to, to David Hall, but on the basis that he would receive money for a period of 16 years. And uh, that was actually coming to an end. Now, as I was, I was talking about the great chess grandmaster and the different boards. So, I mean, one board was possibly getting a job with the British government. And um, the Duke of Grafton, who took over from, from Chatham, when Chatham eventually resigned, Charles Townsend, actually, he was like a sort of comet. You know, he introduced these, these taxes, then died, and, and Grafton took over. Uh, Grafton as Prime Minister and uh, Lord North, who was Grafton's Chancellor of the Exchequer, you know, dangled, dangled, you know, we think we might be able to find something for you. I mean, David Hume, Franklin's great friend, he'd have found a job as a, an undersecretary for a period. So that was one possibility that, you know, he was still considering. Another possibility, well, he could always go back to, to Pennsylvania, but with a relationship with the Pens, you know, not too good. He was also interested in founding a new colony, a colony along the Ohio Valley in what is now West Virginia. So he was actually, he was pushing for that. But there was, there was a fourth, quite good also, you know, for, for extra money coming in with the, the end of the, the partnership with, with David Hall. He could actually take on more assemblies. So as well as Pennsylvania, he took on uh, New Jersey, Georgia, actually that wasn't so good for the money. He, pe he was paid in some sort of rather dodgy land, so Georgians rather let him down there. And of course, Massachusetts, the, uh, the colony of his birth, he took that along. And as time went on, you know, he was moving more and more there. He was also hoping, an additional chessboard if you like, that there would be a change of government in Britain and that, uh, that Rockingham, would come back, 
or that uh, the Earl of Chatham, William Pitt, the elder Earl of Chatham, and his uh, deputy, the Earl of Shelburne, to whom Franklin was extremely uh, close, a very important connection, because effectively because of that connection, the peace treaty uh, between Britain and America was signed in 1783 and the French were sold down the river, but uh, that's, that is, that is a, another story. Um, he he um, was hoping that uh, they might come into, into government. And then he, he was seen very much as an opposition figure, and then he might have stayed. Well, we only have a couple minutes left, but could you, what kind of relationship did he have with the, the radicals in Boston at the time, the Sam Adamses and John Adams? Well, to begin with, they weren't quite sure. Um, his great friend there was Thomas Cushing. And uh, he was, if you like, he was kind of like the, uh, the senior figure. And um, he, wasn't quite, uh, he wasn't quite trusted by, by Sam Adams. Uh, Sam Adams um, was in communication with, uh, with Henry Lee, uh, sorry, Arthur Lee. And uh, Arthur Lee was uh, an alternate i.e. kind of like, a, you know, if, if Ben Franklin can't, uh, can't do it uh, for some reason, then you'll take over. So he was a real sort of uh, uh, bit of a pain as far as Franklin was concerned. But uh, as far as um, Sam Adams was concerned, he actually grew to, to trust Benjamin Franklin. And that's, that was part of the reason to, to show that he was on their side that he sent over the Hutchinson letters, the idea being that Governor Thomas Hutchinson of Massachusetts, he was actually the problem, it wasn't the British government, and in that case, again, he said, he said don't, don't show this letter to people, you know, just amongst a few people, and of course it got out, and it became a major, major scandal. He was carpeted here, but, I mean, Ben Franklin was carpeted here before the Privy Council, it is traditional to think that that is the moment that he actually gave up on Britain. He didn't. He gave up on the British government. In 1774, he was still welcome at meetings of the Royal Society. He was having meetings with the Earl of Chatham to come up with a peace settlement, which was presented in February 1775, but it was roundly rejected by the government and it's at that point, as late as early 1775, that he realized that things were going to break. I wish we had time to keep talking because there's so much more to talk about. But if you want to know more, you'll have to read this book, Benjamin Franklin in London. We've been speaking with its author, George Goodwin. Thank you very much. Thank you, Brian. It's been terrific. I've really enjoyed it. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about PA Books.